0: her imagination, she couldn't doubt it cause there clearly stated she works in that facility where viruses are created, huh. and not only that remember when she had her patients uh-huh. she wrote out prescriptions for what she thought was medication uh-huh. her office was really just a part of the operation, uh-huh. Uh-huh. she wipes her eyes as say, water full of frustration uh-huh. how a victim of government experimentation, uh-huh. where's the justification, yeah. where's the justification yeah. where's the judge when you need on a vacation uh-huh. probably inside of the same country that these events take place uh-huh. but as the puzzle pieces fall into a proper arrangement as yes. yes, we begin to see the intentions of these creations the patterns of epidemics like hiv in the 80s biological chemicals designed to be contagious is nothing in the business of controlling the population uh-huh.
1: welcome everyone to the Tories S show now if you remember correctly back when covid was happening I made such documents come to public and it was all happenstance. If you guys remember my friend, Chris Berg, who no longer is at Fox news because he was fired because he refused to take the vaccine. That was gray media fired him for not taking the vaccine. So he no longer does media, right? Me and him had a conversation five minutes before he had Dr. Jensen on his show. And I urged him, I said, listen, we've been friends for years. Here's a document. You have Dr. Jensen on, ask him, ask him. Please ask him. You have him live on air from Minnesota, ask him. And here's what he said.
2: Said, I think is critically important. Can you repeat what you just said, please?
3: Well, last Friday, I received a seven-page document that sort of told me that if I had an 86-year-old patient that had pneumonia but was never tested for COVID-19, but sometime after she came down with pneumonia, we learned that she had been exposed to her son who had no symptoms but later on was identified with COVID-19, that it would be appropriate to diagnose on the death certificate COVID-19. Now we've not done that if someone has the pneumonia after and, and it's in the middle of a flu epidemic and i don't have a test on influenza i don't diagnose influenza on the death certificate i will say uh this elderly patient Sir, died of pneumonia
2: I, I don't mean to interrupt you but i i my heart is sinking right now as you're telling me this you're you're a doctor why in the world would they be sending you out information to fill out death certificates, whether the person's been diagnosed with COVID-19 or not, but then to say in the death certificate, this person's death was caused by COVID-19. That, that does not sound right to me.
3: I went to the person in our office who does most of the death certificates over the last you know, 10, 20 years, and I said, does this sound right? I had her look at the documents that I printed off, and she said, well, we've always been told that you always put down just facts. You don't put down any probabilities. You don't put any presumptions down. It's just what you know. And so this is concerning, and and it actually gets to your point, Chris. When we start talking about the data that goes into the modeling, we have to ask ourselves a question. Are we being forthright? Are we sharing with the public? Minnesota, North Dakota, we don't need to be having it sugar-coated. We
4: want to know what's going into your modeling. So with that being said, why would they want to skew the number of deaths due to COVID-19? Well,
3: fear is a great way to control people. And I worry about that. I, I worry that sometimes we're so darn interested in just jazzing up
1: the fear factor. I think today we need to take a trip down memory lane. And just remember how the government has done all these things again and again and again, teaching us, oh, you know, we're good. We haven't done anything wrong. You're all wrong. We didn't do anything. But see, our FDA allowed a medication to be used that they knew was infecting people with HIV. See, HIV didn't come from monkeys, didn't come from Tut's tomb, whatever the conspiracy is. It was manufactured in a lab, a government lab, that Fauci ran, right, in order to disable the immunity of humankind. And what better way to do that than see of coagulation factors? What is that? That allows your blood to clot so it's not thin right? So in order to assist you in understanding what's happening now with the COVID-19 vaccine, it's important to understand what is hemophilia, right? Let's take a look at what hemophilia is first. You're going to be like, but I'm not a hemophiliac. doesn't matter. I want you to pay attention to the first study cohort they had. Oh, well, these people will take coagulators because they need to clot their blood because it's all runny and they bleed a lot. What? Here's what a hemophiliac is.
5: What is hemophilia? Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder, a problem with a person's blood that makes them bleed longer than a person without hemophilia. No one can catch hemophilia. It's an inherited condition you have from birth (laughs) for your whole life. It's just part of who you are, like the color of your hair or the shape of your nose. Here's how it works. Your blood travels through your body in tubes called arteries, veins and capillaries. Normally when there's a tear or hole in one of these, bleeding starts and different parts of the blood go to work to plug the hole. Blood cells called platelets gather at the opening and other blood parts called clotting factors help hold the platelets together to form a clot that stops the bleeding. When a person has hemophilia, he doesn't have enough of one of those clotting factors he needs to form a clot, and he keeps bleeding longer than he should. Each person with hemophilia is missing one of two kinds of factors. If you're missing factor eight, you have hemophilia A. If you're missing factor nine, you have hemophilia B. Either one can be mild, moderate, or severe. Without regular treatment, ow, having hemophilia means you'll bleed longer than you should if you get cut. But you don't have to have a cut to have a bleed. Sometimes, especially when you're active, the tiny capillaries inside a person's body will bleed, causing a bruise or pain in the joints. Not dealing with those kinds of bleeds can cause a lot of problems later, including arthritis at a young age. But the good news is, there are good treatments available that can help you manage hemophilia effectively. Treatments that replace the missing factor help your blood clot more like a person who doesn't have hemophilia. These treatments, when used properly, help you keep your bleeding under control so you can live a long, healthy life. And follow your dreams without hemophilia ever holding you back. To learn more about hemophilia, visit worldhemophiliaday.org.
1: So, you know what's responsible to make those clotting factors? Your liver. And you need specific factors. That's how you get thrombogenesis as well, if they're off the chain and constantly reproducing. Right? And a lot of people have said that, um, well, it's no big deal. I mean, people need this. People need, you know, factor eight. They need it because they're bleeding everywhere. It's actually crimes against humanity, what they did. And it's so horrific. And think about it. 16 years ago, Bayer, aka Monsanto, was caused doing this. But guess what? They're the leading pioneers to find a cure. (laughs) You guessed it. For hemophilia, of course.
6: My favorite one is, are you going to die if you get a paper cut? <laughs> That's probably my favorite misconception. My name is Dakota Rosenfeld. I live in Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm a full-time pharmacy student at UMKC School of Pharmacy. I have severe hemophilia A, so hemophilia A is a factor eight deficiency. Um, I was diagnosed at 13 months old, and I've been living and thriving with it ever since.
7: Hemophilia is a disease where you are lacking certain clotting factors. You need to have clotting factors, many of them, in the very end to stop a bleed. It's like a domino effect, so if one piece is missing, all the other ones are useless. My parents did a pretty good job of making sure I lived a
6: normal, active life. The first month or so, they were pretty hesitant because they had absolutely no idea what was going on. But once they reached out, got resources, they found out more about the condition, they said, okay, even at this early day and age, this is going to be something that we can all manage.
7: 50 years ago, the life expectancy of hemophilia patients was between 20 and 30 years. The main problem was there was no treatment. The only way that you could do is transferring blood from a donor in the hope that there's enough clotting factors so that you can stop the bleed. I think with the advent of the recombinant proteins, you had an endless resource of of these clotting factors, and that was the time when you were not looking for just treating a bleed when the bleed occurred, but to not even have a bleed occurring. For me, it was very rewarding to see the progress here, uh, that for a patient community that were basically, yeah, was doomed to die early and or to become crippled, that they can live a really normal life.
6: I use a recombinant clotting factor I, and I actually infuse every other day doesn't take much time. It takes five, maybe 10 minutes out of my day to do it. And treating every other day gives me the peace of mind knowing that my factor levels are high enough at all times to make sure that I don't have any breakthrough bleeds. Earlier on, I definitely saw it as a burden, but it's just something that you get used to. I am so excited about some of the new treatments that are (laughs) being developed. There's treatments out there that are in clinical trials where you might be able to do one treatment, be one and done.
8: Hemophilia is a genetic disease where the patients have a defect in their DNA. As the hemophilia patient is having a kind of faulty factor A gene in the case of hemophilia A, what you can try to do is replace this factor, that's the replacement factors. but you can also try to do this permanently by adding the gene which is responsible for expressing this factor A. And that is done in gene therapy, where the gene is encapsulated in a shuttle so that it gets to the liver where actually factor 8 is mainly produced. And then once in the specific cells in the liver, it expresses factor 8. An alternative to gene therapy could be the use of genome editing, a technology such like CRISPR, as Cassibia is working on. We are trying to make a cut into a genome which is safe to be cut. And we insert the Factor VIII gene to address all the patients with one treatment. So having seen the first results in gene therapy and also what we are doing at Casibia with CRISPR technology, I'm very confident actually that there will be a cure one day.
6: My hope for hemophilia treatment is I don't want it to have to be a conscious thought for hemophilia patients. I don't want to have younger hemophiliacs ever have to know the pain of sitting there watching your friends have fun outside while you're inside for three days because you've got a nasty ankle or knee bleed so you can't get up and move. Knowing that we're transitioning away from that and getting to an area where you can stop worrying about that and you can just live your life is a huge monumental improvement in my book.
1: Of course it is. We just simply forgot that they did this, you know, 16 years ago. Mike, welcome
9: to the show. We appreciate you being on tonight. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. Okay, let's talk about the rat of the week. Why is Bear... Corporation, the rat of the week. Internal documents show that after this company positively, absolutely knew that they had a medication that was infected with the AIDS virus. They took the product off the market in the U.S. and then they dumped it in France, Europe, Asia, and Latin America. The medicine's called Factor Eight. It was an inject an injection medicine that was used for hemophiliacs, mostly children. but the new
1: York- a medicine used for hemophiliacs? They knew it had. HIV, which is, well, Fauci explains it very well, so I'll show it to you later. But I want to show you that about six years after all that happened and they infected a bunch of people with HIV, right? Giving them factor eight as they're training their mRNA slash CRISPR technology. They bought Monsanto. Why not? Why not have the same drug company that gave the world HIV, which is basically a disruptor of your immune system, man-made, and it was refined in the gay population. Why? Your immunity is trained in your gut. And, you know, the way homosexual men have sex is um, offloading in the gut. Therefore, transmissible by fluids. I mean, this was a test as well. You only needed a few people to come and get some infusions, but you should listen to how this has happened. And all of you out there should be taking a look to see how many of your congressmen and senators actually have Monsanto stock. It'll tell you everything you need to know. It's not just Pfizer.
10: Share price under pressure. A lot of concerns about whether you can pull this off. It's a huge deal. How much do you need the deal and how confident are you that you will be able to push it through?
11: Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Francine. And uh, we are very excited about uh, the offer for Monsanto, uh, which we submitted. Uh, You kind of uh, indicated uh, the headline uh, share price and uh, the company valuation. Uh, We see that uh, this is a great opportunity to drive our science and innovation-based business model going forward with the strengths of Monsanto, uh, we are very much convinced that this is a value proposition for the Monsanto shareholders. And we are also convinced and fully committed to this transaction.
10: Do you think that you will get shareholder backing on your side? And when are you expecting to have an answer from Monsanto?
11: Well, we are starting today to communicate many things that our shareholders uh, need in order to assess the quality and the great value proposition of this offer. Not only for Nomenanto shareholders, but also for our shareholders. We have in the past always gone where we can create superior value. And if you look at the history of the company over the last 10 years, we have quadrupled the value of our share, and that is very much driven by the significant and transformational transactions we have done in other segments of our portfolio, beating consumer health or in pharma, right. or also, most recently, with the IPO of Covestro.
12: Uh, Mr. Bauman, uh, Citigroup and Peter Wrold will take your debt out to 42 billion euros. Critically, they don't see return on invested capital doing better than cost of capital until 2023. Can your shareholders wait for an ROIC return that goes out five years? years? or six years, or seven years?
11: Well, uh, there are uh, a number uh, of things that need to be understood with our offer. Uh, I cannot relate uh, to the figures you quoted. Uh, Let me uh, tell you how we see the value creation of this transaction. Actually, as a matter of fact, in the first year after closing the transaction already, we see double-digit earnings per share accretion. And with that, also the ability to pay a higher dividend to our shareholders. Starting from the second year, this will be a double digit increase about roughly that it is what it's going to be uh, over and above our current standalone. And then in terms of return on capital and WEC. After the third year, yeah, and not way into the 2020s uh, the way obviously some people calculate, we will be earning the cost of capital and the premium thereafter, yeah so it is actually a fairly rapidly value creating right. value proposition we have, and that's actually because we are so convinced about this,
12: there, there's any number of ways to go here, and I want to point out that Peter at Citigroup does agree that it is double-digit accretive, uh, really in the first year. The shareholders speak. What I'd like to know, Mr. Bauman, is how beholden is your 42 billion euros of debt to the policies of Mario Draghi and other central bankers? You've got the gift of free money. What happens to your company? What
11: happens to this transaction if interest rates go up? Well, first of all, uh, we look, of course, uh, at a well-blended financing structure with maturities that align with our ability to generate free cash flows and with it, the ability to also deliver. That is something that is uh, something that is a core element of prudent financial policy. And you may have seen the statement of Standard & Poor's in assessing what the financial structure and the balance sheet of Bayer is going to look like going forward. And we are actually very pleased uh, because it is an indication that uh, we are going to have a very solid investment grade rating going forward and also the chance to attain an excellent business profile for rating purposes.
12: Right. Francine Berenberg just publishing.
1: Yeah. We gave them our food. Well, I mean, why not, right? They gave people HIV, they created it, also a little bit of heroin. We should get into this a little bit today because we need to start talking about something <laughs> called phosphorus. I've, I've talked about this over the years, but I think it's important we talk about that for a bit. But in order to get there, we must first understand Bayer. And when they came up, did you know that they were the leading medical company at Auschwitz? Maybe this is why they keep increasing the number of deaths during the Holocaust. It's just so weird. And then you have to wonder, but, but, but we're going to leave that for last. Okay. Not today, another day. But it's important that we see you got a little bit of a cough. Here's some heroin. Why not? Right? What are you talking about? Well, let's start this
13: people clumped up together. In the past, whenever a large population lived in a small area, you'd get horrible disease outbreaks. Spanish flu, cholera, the Black Death, all those nasty diseases would keep the population small and divided. Such problems are a thing of the past now thanks to modern medicine, and so in today's video we'll take a look at one of the big names in the pharmaceutical industry, Bayer. Now Bayer is a very old company, and it's German. It was established in 1863 by a man named Friedrich Bayer who made a living as a dye salesman. Now, at that point in history, the chemical industry was still very young. Only a few decades ago, the Industrial Revolution had swept across Europe and created the booming textile industry. The thing about making clothes, though, is that you need to dye them. And to do that, well, you need dyes. Now, natural dyes were often very rare and expensive, so textile makers wanted a cheap replacement to go along with their mass production. The answer to that problem was synthetic dyes. And that's what our friend Friedrich Bayer was making. Synthetic dyes had been around for less than 10 years when he opened his factory. They were discovered in 1856 by a man called William Perkin. He was a college student at the Royal College of Chemistry in London, and at the time he was trying to synthesize quinine, a medication for treating malaria. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get the reaction right, but in one of his failed experiments he noticed a purple solution in one of his flasks. This failed experiment turned out to be a blessing for him as he quickly discovered that this solution could permanently turn clothes purple. Pretty soon, he had set up a factory to make, and that made him very rich. Back in Germany, Friedrich Bayer and friends were essentially doing the same thing, mass-producing dyes and turning a huge profit. Business was good in these early days of little competition. Bayer's company grew from three employees in 1863 to over 300 in 1881. The synthetic dye industry couldn't remain young forever, though, and eventually new competitors started driving prices down. Byer's response was to establish
1: i just thought i'd point out just for a second that they were trying to find the cure for malaria wait pay attention to what i'm saying with quinine oh you mean hydroxychloroquine that he was trying to create is in the 1800s so the people that discovered how to detract rna Infiltration into your cells, right? So they discovered the quinine, right? Hydroxychloroquine would stop viral. <laughs> okay. And if you guys remember, because, you know, why not, right? When I'm 30, I want to go back to fucking school, right? Right. And I say this again. I went there to share a desk with a guy that, that I saw they had a file on. He had discovered and this is why they needed to hinder it. As an epidemiologist from South America, he had discovered a correlation between uh, HIV contraction and malaria. He noticed that people that have malaria, that have malaria contract HIV if they have sex with prostitutes that are HIV positive. But he discovered that subjects that were taking hydroxychloroquine and having sex with a prostitute that had HIV Well, they wouldn't contract HIV. So let's start at the beginning again. In the 1800s, Bayer was founded by people who were investigating a drug to fight malaria, which was quinine, right? Right? Hydroxychloroquine that we have today, which everyone said does not work in disabling manufactured and or naturally induced RNA Vector situations because that's basically what a virus is it's just r n a it can't exist without a host now malaria you get it from you know mosquitoes that bite you, therefore you get a direct injection of a serum that has that RNA that can hijack things so RNA hanging out on a surface is not going to survive more than a couple seconds you know, or anything like that. I say it again, I sat next to the guy. Because first of all, my main question to him was always like, damn, I'm mind boggled, who would fucking sign up to have sex with a prostitute they know has HIV and are protected, of course, right? I mean, uh, how do you find people who do that? But you know, it's Africa, right? And we've been maiming the African continent, right? For eons, right? Keep them simple because it's one of the biggest continents we have. Don't let the maps fool you. And so you need to keep them in the dark. That's why we never gave them electricity. That's why we didn't give them running water. That's why we didn't give them internet. Now we give it to them and it's bombarded them. They still don't have paved roads, but they got internet. I mean, They need to govern your thoughts, so why not? So again, Bayer, the company that had discovered, right? And was researching, these people were researching quinine to disable malaria, which is a load vectored (laughs) uh, RNA loaded into a vector of serum that is transmitted injectably by mosquitoes, bloodborne, right? So again, 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 Bayer did this. Oh, and then they went and infected everyone. Oh, wait a minute. And then the U.S. government deployed microdoses of it into hepatitis B vaccines. But it didn't really work that well because at the time they were using vectors uh, that were being rejected. So, you know, your hepatitis B vaccines, right? For the liver, right? You get it? Factor eight, liver needed for clots. Okay, fair enough. Oh, wait, and what are people complaining about with these uh, MRNA vaccines. That's right. Thrombogenesis. You mean they're having excessive clotting factors. Has anyone investigated to see how their factor eight works? What about two, five? I mean, can we take a look at that? How are their clotting factors going? Cause we're all talking about the symptoms and what's happening. Has anyone taken a look to see what happens in the liver? Maybe this is why we have an increase in liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, and gists, which are gastrointestinal tumors. But you know, that's just me, you know, Person that's actually studied science, but doesn't practice as a doctor.
13: Has their own research department. This was a huge gamble at the time. Science and medicine, as we know them today, didn't exist in the end of the nineteenth century. People didn't know about acidity, radiation, electrons, and even the nuclear model of the atom. Hell, they'd only recently discovered that washing your hands was hygienic. Despite the sorry state of medicine, though, Bayer's research department managed to make a huge breakthrough when they discovered aspirin in 1897. The active ingredient of aspirin had been discovered more than a century earlier, but ingesting it alone would cause you a nasty stomachache, so it generally wasn't used. What the bioscientists managed to do was to make aspirin less disruptive and more effective. That made it an instant seller, and it kickstarted started Bayer's global expansion. Another big hit they sold was heroin, yes, that heroin. It too had been discovered several decades before, but Bayer managed to commercialize it as a, and I quote here, non-addictive cough suppressant. That's right, they sold heroin as cough medicine. A bit of an overkill, but it was effective. Heroin ended up being extremely popular around the world. Combined with aspirin, Bayer's international sales skyrocketed. By 1913, they had subsidiaries in the UK, US, France and Russia, and over 80% of their revenue was coming from exports. They eventually stopped producing heroin for obvious reasons, but that didn't stop their massive international expansion. Everything seemed to be going great. And then this happened. Archduke Franz Ferdinand gets shot, Austria-Hungary invades Serbia, everyone contracts a bad case of nationalism, and you get World War I. In an instant, 80% of buyers' revenue was gone. Their international subsidiaries were expropriated, and their assets ended up being sold off to competitors. Back at home, they became integrated in Germany's war economy. That meant producing war materials for the Kaiser's military, things like explosives and chemical weapons. Things went bad for the Central Powers pretty fast, and Bayer didn't fare any better. The November Revolution came and went, but the German economy was still pretty much ruined. The early 1920s saw one of the most spectacular cases of hyperinflation in modern history. The German marks value diminished from 48 marks per dollar at the end of World War I to over 4.2 trillion marks per dollar in 1923. Bayer was in deep financial trouble by that point, and so in 1925 they agreed to a massive merger with their German competitors. The resulting conglomerate was called IG Farben, which is short for, oh god help me, Interessengemeinschaft Farbenindustrie Aktiengesellschaft. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It was a bold yet effective move by the Germans, and in a couple of years France and the UK would also consolidate their chemical industries. With IG Farben, however, things started to get a little bit controversial. Don't get me wrong, they made immense contributions to all areas of chemistry. Many of their researchers were awarded Nobel Prizes for their discoveries, but by the end of the 1920s a particular someone was already poking his head around the German political scene. After Hitler became the Fuhrer of Germany in 1934, he ordered the large-scale rearmament of the German military. This turned out to be a very lucrative business opportunity for IG Farben and they took it. By the time Hitler became trigger-happy and decided to invade Poland, IG Farben was one of Nazi Germany's biggest government contractors. This is where things started to get ugly. Many concentration camps were set up to be strategically close to IG Farben's factories. They relied heavily on slave labor, especially towards the later part of the war, and they even went as far as to build a synthetic rubber plant next to Auschwitz. They also produced and held the patent for Cyclone B, the infamous insecticide that was used to gas people in extermination camps during the Holocaust. They were involved in some truly messed up stuff, and I wouldn't blame you if you need some eye-bleach, so here's an image of cute little puppies to make you feel better. So, what happened after the war? Well, things in the East were simple. Stalin came, saw and nationalized, and that was the end of IG Farben's eastern assets. Things in the West, however, were a bit more complicated. As you know, many former Nazis were tried for war crimes at the Nuremberg trials. IG Farben's directors were also put on trial, but they managed to get off lightly compared to their friends from the military. Of the 24 defendants who were indicted, only 13 were found guilty and their sentences barely ranged from one and a half to eight years. The Allies had initially decided to destroy IG Farben because of how morally corrupt it was, but as usual, the interests of major corporations got in the way of justice. John Rockefeller's Standard Oil, for example, had close ties to IG Farben, and the two firms had engaged in numerous cartel agreements. I'll refrain from getting into conspiracy theories, but it is a fact that IG Farben continued their operations well after the fall of the Third Reich. They were finally broken up into their constituent companies in 1952, which led to Bayer's re-establishment as an independent company. Things weren't looking good for the new buyer. This was the second time in a row they had lost all of their foreign assets. In the end, buyer's strategy was pretty much the same. They would heavily invest in research and development, and they would constantly release new products to the market. Not just medicine, but also pesticides and petrochemicals. Over the next five decades, buyer's research division would make numerous advances in the fields of chemistry and medicine, far more than you'd like to know. They ended up spinning off their petrochemical division in 2004, so now they just make pesticides and medicine. Funnily enough, they coexisted with IG Farben up until 2012. That's right; it took German authorities 60 years to settle all the lawsuits from former factory slaves. That's about it for Bayer's story. I hope you enjoyed this fun and occasionally horrific video. Please leave your thoughts and opinions in the comments below. I'd love to hear them. And don't forget to mostly children. Children had been born with an Hold on, disease. hold on,
9: Mike. So, hold on, hold on. So, you're yeah. telling me that Bear knew that this drug was infected with the AIDS virus. At- they yanked it from the market in America, and then they dumped it in markets overseas? They had to figure out a way, Joe, to make a profit on a product that they could not sell in America. So, they made a huge profit. They, jumped, they dropped the product in Japan, Spain, and France. By the way, Joe, government officials in France that allowed that to happen actually had to go to prison for it. In America, not one corporate executive for this company has been indicted or even criminally investigated by our Justice Department. Why not?
14: Uh, the uh, new AIDS uh, st- stories that are out this morning, right. the New York Times gives it uh, front page coverage and to our audience, we're going to spend a whole segment on this at another point, but with Dr. Fauci here, actually, the study that this is written on came from uh, from the NIH, from his division. And uh, the headline, study finds pill greatly lowers risk of AIDS, drug already sold. How significant a finding and what is the finding?
4: Well, as I said and quoted in that article, it is a huge finding. It is really very significant. What the study showed was that in a study with, uh, involving men who had sex with men, they divided it into two groups. One received what's called a placebo and the other received a drug called Truvada, which is commonly and extensively used throughout the world to treat people who are already infected with HIV. In this case, it was used to see if you took a pill every day and you're at a high risk of infection because of your practices, your sexual practices, even if you use condoms and try and reduce the number of partners, will taking the pill decrease your risk of getting infected? And the results were really quite clear that of the individuals who took the pill, overall in the study, there was a 44% decrease in the risk of HIV infection compared to placebo. But importantly, for those who took the drug for at least 90% of the days they were supposed to take the drug, the decrease in risk was actually over 70%, 73%, which is a major finding and a major new tool in our armamentarium against HIV infection.
14: There's a related story in the New York Times. UN reports decrease in new HIV infections uh, fewer people are being infected with the virus causes age than at the epidemics peak they're right but progress against the disease is still halting and fragile the United Nations AIDS fighting agency reported on Tuesday do we know what the implications of this drug study finding might be on the overall global HIV well situation? yeah
4: there's no doubt that uh, if this gets ad- ad- adopted to to be a um, a prevention modality, and there's a lot of difficulties with that. The expense, uh, we're, we don't know quite yet, but we're highly uh, 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 suspicious, in the good sense, that this will work as well in women and work as well in heterosexual men that it did in in men who have sex with men. But having said that, that this will now be considered for sure by some countries as an additional Uh, uh, a tool in the toolkit of prevention. Right now, we've had actually quite a good year and a half. We had a vaccine tested in Thailand that was modestly effective. We're not there yet. We had some very good results with topical microbicides in a South African study in women, and now we have this rather striking result with pre-exposure prophylaxis. As these things mature over the years, I think you're gonna see headlines in the coming years of an even more of a decrease in HIV infection throughout the world.
14: You wanna comment on the latest from the Pope on the use of condoms?
4: Uh, Yeah, it's a long time in coming,
1: I Well, and like I told you, and this still is not public by anyone, which is crazy all these hearings we're having, all these hearings we're having, all of these, man, like I told you last week, we never won the war. Again, all these hearings we're having and what have I said throughout the years before COVID that you, whenever you go to the doctor, whatever you get, either that be medication or a vaccine, you are filed as part of a cohort. Prophylaxis, Some people in their hepatitis B got a little bit of a live HIV, you know, manipulation tech. And this all happened thanks to Obama. What? Tori, no, he didn't do it. Yes, he did. How did he do it? Obamacare. If you remember correctly, my biggest issue with Obamacare was the AER system. I've written about it saying, oh, this is so fantastic because so-and-so can't speak. Highlighting the dangers. And we're talking... 2015, 2014, 2013, you know, just putting it out there before Huffington Post decided. Well, they shut it down, didn't they? Well, sort of. But cohorts. Have you ever noticed that when you get a vaccine or medication, they scan a shit ton of barcodes? One goes into the federal system. Have you ever read the terms and conditions when you go to the hospital? Obviously not. And I've been saying this for years. They maintain your DNA. They maintain the pictures, the audio, everything. Read the fine print. And then they use this lingo that was inserted into Obamacare. We don't share your information. HIPAA makes sure that everything is safe, except with third parties, according to federal government regulations. And third parties in this case is also China, because they're part of the AR system. It's also Germany. It's also Australia. It's also any country in the world can access your private health information if they're treating you, of course, not like they have unfettered access to your DNA that the hospital holds on to for at least seven years according to every single term and condition in there. But no one pays attention. That's the thing. See, they gave you Obamacare. Everyone gets free health care. Oh, look at me. I can't afford it. And so now everyone can afford it. And it's like the crying sob story. And underneath that iceberg is hell. And everyone just ran in there. All the pork was stuffed in there. I told you I worked on it. I worked on just, you know, hey, how do we give language access to those that are deaf and speak another language because it was necessary in order for the AR system to operate. But you know, what do I know? I just Google shit, right? I just Google shit. Well, you know, as someone that loves, you know, history and has expressed to you, you know, how the media is used to manipulate thoughts. It's actually very cool because quantum computing has been around for a while and quantum computing itself has been warning you. Let's go back in time to the first ever, first ever episode. I'm going to show you a portion of a pilot episode which is almost like a documentary. And I highly suggest not to binge watch new shit. Why don't you go back in time and binge watch something that's quite fascinating. I want you to pay attention to this exchange of words. Agent Dana Scully.
15: Agent Scully, thank you for coming on such short notice. Please. We see you've been with us just over two years. Yes, sir. You went to medical school, but you chose not to practice. How'd you come to work for the FBI?
10: Well, sir, I was recruited out of medical school. Um, My parents still think it was an act of rebellion, but, uh, I saw the FBI as a place where I could distinguish myself.
15: Are you familiar with an agent named Fox Mulder? Yes, I am. How so?
10: By reputation. Um, He's an Oxford-educated psychologist who wrote a monograph on serial killers and the occult that helped catch Monty Props in 1988. Generally thought of as the best analyst in the violent crime section. He had a nickname at the academy. Spooky Mulder
15: What I'll also tell you is that agent Mulder has developed a consuming devotion to an unassigned project outside the Bureau mainstream Are you familiar with the so-called X-Files?
10: I Believe they have to do with unexplained phenomena
15: more or less The reason you're here agent Scully is we want you to assist Mulder on these X-Files You will write field reports on your activities along with your observations on the validity of the work
10: Am I to understand that you want me to debunk the X-Files project, sir?
15: Agent Scully, we trust you'll make the proper scientific analysis. You'll want to contact Agent Mulder shortly. We look forward to seeing your reports.
1: That was season one. That was the pilot episode. Introducing the characters. You know, Fox Mulder kind of sounds like Steve (laughs) Pachenik. Dr. Pachenik. Who I'm dying to have coffee with. Because I'm sure he finds it very fascinating. But um, having said that, crimes against humanity are no laughing, you know matter. You know we've talked about this before, where I'm showing you DNA stuff that I dabbled with. I see that many of you found the Agrobacterium tumefaciens, which was my infatuation, but we can talk about that another time. I mean, I have talked about that before using it as a model for cancer blah 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 but it was never about the cancer it was about the communication between cells quorum sensing but i digress let's get into some really out there stuff so now we understand that the pharmaceutical company that actually found a cure to hinder um i would say uh um, vectors with efficacy to carry mRNA and RNA loads, quinine, right? So the ones that discovered how to hinder RNA loads, and that's how it happens, just so you know. You already know that there's an RNA load in a vector, kind of like a mosquito in the serum that they inject in order to extract. So what they do is they inject you and Out comes a serum, and then they suck your blood, right? That's how mosquitoes work. Well, what they did was they found this vector, and they're like, okay, how do we stop it? Well, quinine, right, hydroxychloroquine, to be exact, disables the ability for that serum to survive. Well, what they did was they took that vector in the 1800s and reverse engineered it especially during the Nazi times cuz we never won the war. But and then they tell you that in order to fix things they're going to have to cut out and put in in the DNA. And as I, and, and as I told you, you know, cuz at 30 everyone's like, "Yeah, why not? Let me go back to school and burn my career," right? <sighs> they decide, "Hey, here's how we're going to do it." We're going to create that tech, and we're going to find a problem that exists, and we're going to create something that increases clotting factors. But in that process, we're going to find a way how we can turn people's immunity off. Well, you know, there's one factor. You can give someone something that's like a sleeper agent, I guess, right, in a more sci-fi situation, because, you know, we're totally running out of conspiracy theories, definitely. And we're going to splice their DNA and we're going to put in something that's going to heal them, right? You know, alter the, you know, human genome forever. But, oh, it's mRNA, not CRISPR. (laughs) I see. So you're going to take software, molecular software, to hijack existing software you don't understand and see how it works. See, because that's a lot easier because they know that they can't cleave the DNA. And we know this based on Dr. Ventner's, right? Ventner already discovered that snipping DNA, he took the most pedestrian, the most smallest DNA array that exists in Mycobacterium genitalia. It has no cell wall. It's base, it's like so small. So he was like, yo, that's virulent. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. Let me insert DNA, um, you know, coding to make it blue. He successfully did that. And he's like, yo, I just changed this. Mobile, ExxonMobil have given him billions to recreate a bacterium that spits out fuel. That's why he's genetically modifying it, just so you know. And so I actually went to his lab and, and, and this is why I went back to school. This is how I had access to laboratories. You know, being a mature student in your 30s Boy, the doors are open for that whole equal opportunity card. I can use the JJ card. I'm a woman. I'm a mom. I'm a mature student all the time. You use their bullshit to your advantage. So you go in there and you see it. And this genius of a man says, shit, in a controlled environment, this is pretty good. I mean, I put it out. Suddenly all the genes that I cut out manifest again. Huh. We're talking transposons, but that's a whole other thing. Let's talk about how your DNA changes forever and ever and ever. Quoting Spongebob. It's pretty interesting.
16: Cats. The researchers took a gene from glowing jellyfish and inserted it into the unfertilized eggs of house cats. It was a neat trick, but they had a bigger goal in mind. They also made the cats more likely to be resistant to a feline form of AIDS, by again, manipulating their DNA. And cats aren't that different than humans. In fact, we share around 90% of our DNA with them. So why can't we engineer humans in the same way? Well, we can. Engineer ourselves to be resistant to life-threatening illnesses, that is. In fact, one scientist claims that he's genetically engineered two babies using a revolutionary tool called CRISPR. But what exactly is a CRISPR baby anyway? Would you like to be 6 feet tall or never bald? The secret to traits like these lies in the 6 billion letters of your genetic code. But there could be something else in there as well. Mutations. Genetic mutations are linked to at least 6,000 medical conditions, from sickle cell anemia to Huntington's disease. But what if you could make those mutations simply disappear? That's where the gene editing tool CRISPR comes in. CRISPR is made from specialized proteins and other compounds found in certain bacteria
17: join together to form polynucleotides and it is condensation reactions that build our polynucleotides. Many nucleotides join together to form polynucleotides and they do so via condensation reactions. The phosphate group, located at carbon number 5, of one nucleotide will undergo a condensation reaction with the hydroxyl group at carbon number 3 of the pentose sugar of another nucleotide, linking the sugar and the phosphate by means of a phosphodiester bond. And if we zoom in here, we can see that process take place, where we have the phosphate group located at carbon number 5, undergo the condensation reaction with the hydroxyl group at carbon number 3, we can see the removal of the water molecule, and the resulting bond that links them is the phosphodiester bond.
18: Hey guys, welcome to today's MCAT question of the day. As always, we will be working our way through one of the many MCAT practice problems found at mcatselfprep.com, the home of the free MCAT prep course. I'm Andrew George, a 99th percentile MCAT tutor, and I'll be walking you through today's practice problem as if you're one of my private tutoring students. Be sure to hit pause and try this problem for yourself before watching my explanation. This practice question is fairly straightforward if we understand the basic structure of DNA. The backbone of DNA is composed of phosphate groups as well as ribose sugars. So this whole thing right here consists of the backbone of DNA. And it makes sense because if you think about a backbone or like a spine, it's something that's got repetitive units in it, right? We just have repeating units of ribose phosphate, ribose phosphate, ribose phosphate. It repeats all the way down. So we think about it as the backbone, right? Whereas the rest of this structure, these nitrogenous bases, these vary, right? They're different all the way down. And that's why we don't include them as part of the DNA backbone. Now, this bond between our ribosugar and our phosphate group is known as a phosphodiester bond. And we call it that because we have this phosphate plus two esters. Ester there and ester there. Right? Let's take a second look at the question stem. It states The structural backbone of DNA has been compromised by a rare pathogen. This pathogen must have disrupted what type of bond? And because we're dealing with the structural backbone, we're dealing with phosphodiester bonds, and that means we're dealing with covalent bonds. Answer choice A. If you liked this question of the day...
19: Hello, everyone. Today, I want to tell you about such an element as phosphorus. Phosphorus is a typical non-metal element that is located in the 15th group of the periodic table of chemical elements. In nature, phosphorus is present in the composition of the minerals, called apatites. Our body contains 1% of phosphorus by mass, mostly as a part of the bones. Pure phosphorus exists in four allotropic modifications, the most common one of which is the modification of red phosphorus. The red phosphorus looks like a dark red powder, which readily absorbs moisture from the air. Over time, red phosphorus gets caked due to formation of polyphosphoric acids while being exposed to air. In everyday life, we can find phosphorus on the scratched surface of a matchbox. During the friction process of a match with the box, the potassium chloride contained in the match head oxidizes the phosphorus, releasing heat that ignites the composition of the match head. Red phosphorus burns well in air. And, of course, it burns even better in pure oxygen. In a flask filled with pure oxygen, the burning phosphorus emits huge amounts of light. This reaction can be used for lighting up a large space. The smoke produced in the bulb is nothing more but the phosphorus oxide, from which it is possible to obtain calcium zinc phosphate, which is used for coating the insides of fluorescent lamps as luminophore. In addition to the red form, which is more or less stable, by process of sublimation, the red phosphorus can be converted into a very unstable form, the white phosphorus. White phosphorus has more interesting but dangerous properties. For example, it's extremely high toxic White phosphorus actively oxidizes and releases smoke, forming the oxide of phosphorus. Hence it's stored in water in the dark white phosphorus glows due to oxidation by oxygen in air but the glowing is very weak but you shouldn't think that everything that glows in the dark is phosphorus no one is going to sell toys made of white phosphorus and cause the clock hands using it if you are doubting this look at what happens when the white phosphorus is put onto a warm surface it immediately melts and ignites burning with a very high temperature more than 800 degrees celsius white phosphorus burn on any surface igniting everything around it that is why people started to use it to make incendiary ammunition shells which later got banned spontaneous human combustion
20: would likely be- dismissed by all as an impossibility. Reports of the phenomenon reach back through the centuries of history. It's been credited as divine judgment for drunkards, discredited as a gruesome hoax, taken up as evidence of paranormal activity, and ridiculed time and time again, and researched with a vengeance. The stories about it are numerous and horrifying. It kills the vast majority of its victims, it's rejected by scientists for good reason and almost without exception. theories that attempt to explain spontaneous human combustion are borderline insane, while others are actually pretty thought-provoking. An example of the latter would be research biologist Brian J. Ford's acetone theory and the resulting experiment involving pork tissue being marinated in highly flammable liquid. But we're not here to debate the causes or scientific possibility of spontaneous human combustion, we're simply here to present some intriguing cases of people who apparently experienced it whether it was their bodies directly or the clothes they were wearing that combusted Number 10 baby Rahul Our first case is Rahul, an Indian child, who made headlines for catching fire while yet an infant. This baby human torch was barely a week old when he first ignited, and in the span of a couple of months, he managed to flame on a total of four times. His parents first admitted Rahul to the Kilpauk Medical College and Hospital in Chennai on August 8, 2013. Some doctors initially accepted his parents' claim that the burns were caused by spontaneous human combustion. Most were skeptical, though. However, after tests indicated Rahul was completely normal, pretty much all attending physicians became concerned that child abuse might be the issue here. The KMCH eventually filed complaints with the police and the Child Welfare Committee, requesting investigations into the matter. But the parents stuck to the story, and psychiatric counseling revealed them to be normal as well. No investigation was ever launched, but many people suspected that the mother was setting the child on fire. But the story it doesn't end here. Rahul had a younger brother, Sanjay, who suffered from the same mysterious condition. Born on January 9th, 2015, Sanjay was found with his feet on fire when barely a week old, just like Rahul. Sanjay only caught fire on one occasion, but sadly, he died on the way to the hospital after suffering from a bad case of diarrhea in February of 2016. Rahul, however, had a burning desire to survive, and he is indeed alive to this day. 9. Frank Baker In June of 1995, decorated Vietnam War veteran Frank Baker got the surprise of a lifetime and by that we mean he burst into flames. Baker and his fishing buddy Pete Wiley were all set for the next day's derby and the two of them were passing time inside on the couch. All of a sudden, the man with two purple hearts and a gallantry medal found himself under a different kind of fire. Fortunately, the men were able to extinguish the fire, licking Baker's forearm and torso, and get him to the hospital. There the doctor informed Baker that his injuries were like nothing he would seen before. The fire seemed to have burned from the inside out, which incidentally is a common observation in cases of spontaneous human combustion. Baker's story was later featured in an October 2013 episode of Science's documentary TV series The Unexplained Files. There's also an interesting thread started by Baker on Science Chat Forum, where he described the incident as the most terrifying experience of his life. Larry Arnold, author of Ablaze! The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion, adds to the discussion via interview by noting that Baker experienced a second similar event while fishing a Vermont lake with Wiley. He also mentions Baker felt no pain during either event, a dispensation not extended to the studious Tennessee professor, who's going to be appearing in a moment. 8. Susan Motsed. As related by Mystique Earth, an account in John Hamer's The Entrancing Flame describes the curious 1980 case of Susan Motsed and the flame-resistant pajamas that weren't. It was winter in Cheshire, England, and head was in the kitchen. The last thing on her mind, presumably, was her jam-jams catching on fire. But that's exactly what they did, wrapping poor head in a warm cloak of yellow and blue flames for no apparent reason other than to guard against the chilly weather. Her daughter Joanne was present to provide the appropriate screams. Mercifully, the fire was brief and Susan was not harmed. Even her hair remained unscorched. When the fire brigade arrived, they tried to light the pajamas by traditional means Ostensibly to disprove an insane woman's tale of spontaneous human combustion in a kitchen of all places, but they failed. Perhaps a career spent fighting fires in homes deprives you of the ability to start fires. Number seven, Gianna Winchester. What began as a pleasant cruise with a friend ended unexpectedly for a naval airwoman named Gianna Winchester. On October 9th of the same year, as Susan Mott said on Planned Pajama Test, Winchester was riding in a car with her friend Leslie Scott. As they drove along Seaboard Avenue in Jacksonville, celebrating Florida's enjoyably warm October weather, we imagine Winchester's body decided to turn the heat way up. Yellow flames engulfed Winchester. Scott started beating them out with her hands, saving her passenger, but leaving the car to drive itself into a telephone pole. Though 20% of her body was burned, Winchester lived to tell the tale. Well, sort of. She later stated that she had no recollection of the actual incident, only riding in the car before and then waking up in the hospital after. Number 6. Mr. H. Professor of Mathematics An 1836 edition of the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal contains a detailed report on the fiery experience of a 30-something University of Nashville mathematics professor simply called Mr. H. The report, authored in the previous year by Dr. James Overton, describes in very precise terms how the professor's left leg caught fire on January 5, 1835. Here's the basic story. In the middle of what was an otherwise normal day of classes and meteorological observations, Mr. H was suddenly subjected to a sharp pain in his upper left leg. It began as a strong sensation, as if produced by the pulling of a hair, and grew more and more severe until a small flame finally hatched. Though in great pain and certainly flabbergasted by this turn of events, the professor retained his presence of mind and was able to extinguish the flame by using his own hands to starve it of oxygen. Mr. H survived the odd combustion and recovered, much to the dismay, of man-eating fires all across Tennessee. Later in retelling his story to Dr. Roverton, he described the flame as having a small base the size of a ten cent coin and an appearance like that of mercury. The extent of damage to Mr. H was a three inch by three quarter burn that was inflicted on his leg. His trousers suffered no damage at all. However, his drawers sported a brand new hole in the exact size and shape of the wound described. I suppose this a small price to pay for a lifetime of being able to introduce yourself as hello, I'm Professor H. I once caught fire for no reason, so I put it out with my bare hands because I am the destroyer of fire. Number 5. Mrs. Charles Williamson. January 1932, a cold winter day in Bladenboro, North Carolina. Charles Williamson was downstairs listening to the radio and probably wishing television would hurry up and get to the market when his wife's cotton dress went up in flames. Her screams of terror brought Charles and their daughter to the rescue, and together they were able to tear the dress off her before it was too late. Though Mrs. Williamson wasn't hurt, the dress was reduced to well, not being a dress anymore. This was just the beginning of four days of bizarre combustions. First, the bed took fire, then some curtains, and then a pair of Charles's pants. All these items and more were consumed by what witnesses described as blue jet-like flames that left neither smell nor smoke. The Williamson's evacuated on the fourth day, clearing the house for various experts and to investigate, but nothing abnormal could be found. On the fifth day, the random fires ceased, and the Williamson's moved back into their home. No further troubles were reported, though the events undoubtedly left behind a lingering scent of foreboding doom to keep the family company for at least a little while. Number 4. Debbie Clark So far, most of our cases have involved people who were legitimately terrified to be attacked by a mysterious kind of fire that usually leaves victims in a pile of ashes. But Debbie Clark is different, because while her family was busy freaking out about the giant flashes of blue light sparking out of her, Debbie Clark was laughing. Mystique Earth again cites the entrancing flame in its account of As the story is, the girl was on her way home when she started seeing what were likely st- cause of spontaneous human combustion, according to one theory. Of course, the sight of strange blue light leaping from Clark's body was not well received by her mother Diane, who immediately took to screaming, or by her brother, who started yelling about spontaneous human combustion. Clark ended up being fine as the static flashes never ignited the killer fire they portended. Her sense of humor was apparently dark enough to change death's mind on the spot. So the next time you think your body might be preparing to cremate itself, just remember that laughter is quite literally the best medicine. And if laughing doesn't work for you, well, you'll be able to say that at least you end up laughing. Either way, you win. Number 5. The Wife of Dr. Frylus. The last three cases of survival on our list all come from Jan Bondeson's A Cabinet of Medical Curiosities. They're brief and obscure, but they're also some of the most peculiar accounts we came across while researching this video. For example, this 18th century tale of an unfortunate woman with a bad case of flammable panties. According to the clergyman Giuseppe Bianchini, there was a certain physician by the name of Freelus, who was employed by the Archbishop of Toledo, Spain. As Bianchini testified, the doctor's wife suffered from an odd kind of chronic perspiration, the kind of sweat that burns. It got to the point that her undergarments would catch on fire whenever they were exposed to the air and flames would shoot out like grains of gunpowder. No words on whether this was a boon or bad fortune for the couple's sex life. Number 2. Zacharis of Hester If the previous account was amusing, well, we're blazing straight into crazy territory right now. Apparently, 19th century Scandinavian folk medicine had a fairly disgusting prescription for spontaneous combustion, and that would be human urine, preferably that from a woman. Makes perfect sense. Anyway, a tale from Sweden introduces us to a drunkard named Zachris, who burst into blue flame while lying in bed. This Zachris must have still been lovable despite his boozing ways, for his wife promptly relieved herself on him and her husband of the situation. After this, the story concludes he did not drink Aquavit anymore. Good call. Number one The Man Gamp Savory Saved. Our final entry dates back to the early 16th century, and it is possibly the first recorded case of spontaneous human combustion. One fine Sunday, in Rowland's Norway, a person by the name of Gamp Savre was just leaving church when he came across a drunk blacked out on the ground with blue flames shooting from his mouth. So he did the only proper thing. As Parson in a situation could do, he pissed on the guy. However, the drunkard, not being privy to this generally accepted treatment for spontaneous combustion, took offence to the action. And unfortunately for the well-intentioned priest, so did the rest of the congregation who witnessed it. And thus did Gamsevray's life come to an end, with a violent mob of churchgoers and at least one alcoholic chasing him down and beating him senseless with a candlestick taken from his own altar. And if you're wondering, yes, the drunk man, he survived. So I really hope you found that video interesting.
21: Hey guys, what's up? I want to show you something really cool today. Um, this will be the second episode of our Fire Starters series. And uh, today it's using, uh, like last time, we used potassium permanganate and glycerin. Today we're going to use white phosphorus uh, and we're just going to set it on the atmosphere and uh, see if we can't get it to combust. So it'll be super cool. Stick around, guys. Uh, first of all, let's start off with something that uh, is a little sketchy. Uh, is what we call white phosphorus or yellow phosphorus. Uh, same thing. Uh, and so anyway, this stuff is uh, another way that we can start a fire. All right, so we got to move all this stuff to the fume hood because uh, once this phosphorus catches, it's going to make uh, quite a bit of smoke. Uh, it's phosphorus pentoxide that we're going to be cr- creating. And it's a little poisonous, so we want to get rid of that. So we're going to go to the fume hood, and we're going to do the reaction in there. I'll show you. All right, so here we are, we're in the fume hood and we're gonna go ahead and, and prepare uh, some phosphorus so we can start a fire here. Uh, the interesting thing about phosphorus is it has to be kept under water. It's so reactive with oxygen, uh, we have to store it in water. So inside of here, we've got some pieces of phosphorus uh, and it's all stored underneath some water. So uh, in order to cut this though, we have to pull it out and cut it underwater as well. Um, so I'm just gonna grab some tongs here. All right, so let's get us a piece of phosphorus out here. Uh, So over here, I've got a big container of water as well. So I'm just going to pull a chunk of phosphorus and put it in the water here. Um, Something that's really interesting about this, let me pull it out for just a second and show you uh, if we can focus on that. See the smoke that starts rolling off of the phosphorus once it's out of the water? Um, Yeah, just putting it back in the water, we can cause that to stop. Um, but once it's out in the air and that water evaporates off a little bit, we see some smoke starting. That is phosphorus pentoxide. Smells a lot like matches. I'm going to go ahead and put this under water so we can get it cut. Uh, there you can see where we've cut it. It's kind of a really interesting red color there. Uh, so there's that. We'll put that back now so we don't need the whole thing. So I'm going to grab that out of here and show you what that looks like. And just, I'm going to set it on top of the sand here. All right, so there's our phosphorus. It is sitting on top of our sand. Uh, So if we leave it out long enough, it will go ahead and combust. Um, The problem with that is that it just, it takes quite a while. Uh, So what I do have though, I've got a stir rod here. Uh, This is just a glass rod that we use to stir things. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to heat up the end of this stir rod here not at all in any way are we messing with the phosphorus Uh, i just want to add a little heat Uh, so i'm just heating up the end of our rod here Uh, it's probably sufficient it doesn't take a whole lot of energy but if we add just a little touch of warmth to our phosphorus uh, it takes off really well
16: that's where the gene editing tool CRISPR comes in specialized proteins and other compounds found in certain bacteria normally these proteins protect the bacteria by destroying enemy invaders like viruses but the inventors of CRISPR figured out how to turn those proteins against genetic mutations and other genes linked to disease first they give the proteins coordinates of the wanted gene. Then, CRISPR runs a seek and destroy function. After that, other molecules are dispatched to repair the gene with new, healthy DNA. And just like that, you can edit the human genome. But while the edits may be quick, their changes can last for centuries, especially if you're editing the DNA in an embryo. Embryos start out with a single cell that eventually replicates into millions and then trillions more. So if you alter that initial cell first, you're manipulating the ingredients for every cell that follows later in life. And those same altered cells can be passed on from generation to generation. That's one reason why most experiments on human embryos haven't left the lab. That is, except for the work of Dr. He Jiankwai. He claims to have used CRISPR to target and knock out the CCR5 gene in human embryos, which is linked to HIV infection. And then he did something that shocked the scientific community. He implanted the embryos into several women, one of whom gave birth to genetically modified twins resistance to HIV aside, most scientists say the procedure was too risky. At least two studies suggest that edited cells might actually trigger cancer, and another found that CRISPR can accidentally take aim at healthy DNA. So while CRISPR could make us immune to disease, who knows what else we might get on the side.
4: from behavioral modifications, use of condoms, needle exchange, prophylactic antiretroviral therapy, topical microbicides. Interestingly, circumcised men have less of a chance of getting infected than uncircumcised men. But the real critical one, historically, is vaccination. So what we do is that we look at this, as we did early on, in a classical way of vaccination the same way as we did with therapy. But unfortunately, this metaphorically extraordinarily smart virus has eluded what we do. Historically, what do vaccines do? Vaccines are the most spectacular way to prevent disease ever imaginable. These are some of the lists of the great killers. These were the baseline number of cases per year in the 20th century, measles, 503,000 diphtheria, mumps, pertussis, smallpox, polio, etc. In 2006, this is the decrease in those cases because of vaccines. This is, this is a spectacular success story. Anywhere from 96 or 89 to 100% efficacy. That's what we would love to have with HIV. Why don't we have it in 2008? And why, as you can imagine, what I'm going to tell you, what might we expect in 2025? Now, I I show you this, is that these are examples of very well recognized diseases with variable degrees of morbidity and mortality. Some may remember the polio epidemics of the 1940s and early 50s. Smallpox, which has now been eradicated measles which we still see little blips of occasionally and influenza which occurs every year so I've picked out four of these to make one important point and the important point is that even with those diseases that have a great deal of morbidity and mortality ultimately the body will eliminate those infections so that smallpox will kill 15% of the people. A small fraction of people who get polio will get paralytic polio. But what the body tells us is that sooner or later, usually within days to weeks, if you survive that, you will eliminate the virus and you will be protected forever. So the body is a great nature, is really smart. So the body has already told us that it has the equipment to control measles, smallpox, polio, and influenza. And guess what? We have very successful vaccines against them. Why? This is an influenza vaccine. When you make a vaccine, you're trying to induce an immune response against these very obvious proteins. No need to remember what their names are, but they're out there very easy for the immune system to see. So viruses such as influenza are easily seen by the immune system. The immune system makes a natural response without a vaccine. So nature is much smarter than I am and that my colleagues are. So nature has already told us how to make an influenza vaccine. How do you do it? You get these two proteins, you inject them into people, they make a neutralizing antibody response, and you are protected. It's not rocket science. It's relatively easy. What about HIV? Again, in a metaphorically very cunning way, HIV, the components that evoke an immune response are hidden. Now, you don't need to know anything about this process, but it really tells you that if this is the cell and the virus comes and binds to that receptor that I showed you in a previous slide, this part here that induces very transiently, the good immune response that you want doesn't happen readily. So the body's natural response to HIV is inadequate. So if we're gonna get a vaccine, we've gotta do a vaccine that does better than nature does because we can't use the natural infection model. The other thing is, that when you develop a vaccine against other diseases, you have what I call a window of opportunity. With our best vaccines, you can block the virus before it reaches its target organ, namely, there's some level of viral replication, but it is aborted before it causes disease. Let me give an example. If any of you have gotten an influenza shot this year and you were protected from influenza, That doesn't mean that when you were on an elevator or talking to people in a crowd or in a theater that somebody had influenza and they sneezed on you and the influenza virus went in you, it probably replicated a few times, didn't make you sick. But the vaccine that induced your body's immune system was able to suppress it before it actually made you noticeably sick. So you felt
22: perfectly well. Yes. You have the
2: ability to read and interpret medical patents? Yes, I do. And are you also an author of professional papers? Yes, sir. And approximately how many?
22: Somewhere between four and 500.
2: And do you also serve a, uh, on the editorial board of professional journals?
22: On editorial boards and review boards for the journals.
2: And, and briefly, what does a reviewer in a uh, professional journal do?
22: The obligation is when somebody submits a paper for publication for reviewers to take a look at that material, to determine if it's scientifically valid, to determine if it makes a difference in the field, and to make recommendations back to the editorial board about whether the paper should be accepted or revised or rejected for publication.
2: Are you prepared to testify under oath here today that COVID-19 is a bioweapon? Yes, I am. You wrote a book posing the question, is COVID-19 a bioweapon, correct?
22: The function of the book was to provide information that the general public could look at and also to provide evidence for uh, the legal system and the medical system to understand the gain-of-function research that's been carried out over a couple decades, to show where the monies came from, to show what papers were published, showing what types of -of gain-of-function research occurred, and to show the patents to clearly lay out two decades worth of work that's been conducted funded primarily by the United States, although other countries have been involved, and to show how there's no evidence that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, no evidence to show that it's naturally occurring, no animal model for it, and to show the type of research that's been done with coronaviruses uh, funded by the US, uh, supported by NIAID, NIH, Department of Defense, Money is I went to Peter Daszak at EcoHealth to Ralph Berrick at the University of North Carolina to Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and to several other universities around the country, including in the state of Texas.
2: Did you also look at the genetic code of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and especially the spike protein?
22: We did, as well as Professor Luc Montagnier, who is the gentleman who discovered the HIV virus and several other individuals that we uh, note in the book. And based on
2: that review of the genetic code, that informed your conclusion that this is a bioweapon.
22: Right. So the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty states that any adjustment or modification of a biological agent like this virus that doesn't provide a benefit for mankind uh, is a biological weapon. These particular changes in this virus, including the PRRA insert, which are uh, amino acids that were inserted that are very critical for the purine cleavage site for this virus to infect, the insertion sites that were made with HIV and simian or ape-like uh, HIV equivalent viruses, the uh, prion-like domain at the top of the spike protein, as well as the HIV glycoprotein 120 insert that Xi Lee put in early on that's critical for the attachment of this virus to cells, all of which are not naturally occurring.
2: So to be clear, the
22: SARS-CoV-2 uh,
2: virus, otherwise known as COVID-19, And especially its spike protein, is not something that's simply involved on its own in nature.
22: We've looked at all the different coronaviruses that exist on the planet. None of them have the PRRA insert. None of them have this tremendous amount of HIV insert. None of them have a regional binding domain that is a prion-like binding domain, which means that where it attaches to the cells, it's a prion-like domain, and prions are things that are abnormal proteins that cause other proteins to become abnormally folded.
2: So to be clear, genetic changes were made to the spike protein in a lab to create what is known as the COVID-19, correct?
22: That's what all the, the uh, data shows.
2: Your book references research in 2010 by Shi Li, who's often called the Bat Lady. Was that research designed to determine how to increase the spike protein binding capacity to the human ACE2 receptor. So that was her goal of
22: that that research was to increase the ability of the virus to infect human cells.
2: Now, interestingly, I think in this published research, they discovered that the naturally occurring spike protein from horseshoe bats was unable to bind to the human ACE2 receptors.
22: Right. That's exactly right.
2: So as of 2010, scientists, including Shi Zhengli in Wuhan, China, knew that naturally occurring Horseshoe-back coronavirus spike proteins could not infect humans. That's right. Based on your testimony, it sounds like you discovered at least two man-made inserts into the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein genetic code that prove it was produced in a lab.
22: Right. The research papers that shi Lee Li and Beric and others published, they were, they were very clear and somewhat proud of the fact that they'd been able to modify the virus and to insert changes into it that made it more infective and potentially more dangerous.
2: Is there some laboratory mechanism where they're able to take genetic code from elsewhere and put it into a virus?
22: Right. So you can actually build um, anything if you know what the structures are. It's like building a car. If you know what the parts are, you simply put it together. Many of the research studies that we have pointed out, they took bits and pieces of one virus, combined it with bits and pieces of another virus. If you go and look at those papers, you'll also find that they were very specific by inserting five nucleotide base pairs in there. So they simply switched the base pairs, and that will result in a different amino acid being added and a different protein.
2: Let's talk uh, about the first insert that you found in the SARS-CoV-2 virus that led you to conclude that it was a man-made uh, bioweapon. Uh, the first one I think you refer to is the furin cleavage pr RA insert, correct?
22: That's correct. And can you explain briefly what that is? Okay, so that's four amino acids that were put in. When this virus attaches, and I know this is long and complicated because a lot of people have heard of ACE2, which is one of the receptors, but it's a multi-step process. The HIV glycoprotein 120 insert, which was the second one we talked about, is required to attach to what's called a sialic acid receptor raft that stabilizes it and puts it in position. The virus then comes into contact with the ACE2 receptor. That then undergoes a change with something called a TMPRSS2 receptor, which is critical to understanding because that begins the process of bringing that virus into the cell it then has to undergo furin cleavage at the furin cleavage site, and that's the PRRA, which makes it particularly infective for human cells. And then it comes across also something known as the neuropilin-1 receptor, which is found in the brain.
2: How did you discover that this PRRA furin cleavage insert had been made to SARS-CoV-2?
22: All you have to do is the nucleotide-based sequencing, which is how we know all the variants occur. And when you do that, you find this PRRA insert.
2: Now this genetic code for the furin cleavage insert, the PRRA, is that found in any other coronavirus in nature? None. It's not found in any other coronavirus that exists in the wild?
22: Right. There's absolutely no other coronavirus that has this PRRA insert. and So that's 12 nucleotide bases, not a single base like sickle cell, but 12 specific nucleotide bases to provide for four amino acids that very specifically is connected with the furin cleavage site which the U.S. government owns the patent on. ...under increasing
23: scrutiny for a contraceptive medical device it manufactures called Esher. Thousands of women across the country have already reported serious injuries because of the device, which was approved in 2002. But on Wednesday, U.S. Representative Mike Fitzpatrick alleged that Esher had also caused hundreds of unreported fetal deaths. And that Bayer Pharmaceutical had also provided tens of thousands of dollars in illegal kickbacks to doctors for promoting the device.
18: One of the issues that's disturbing to me is that these these issues would only come to light because of the work of
23: victims. In a press call Wednesday morning, Congressman Fitzpatrick told a group of reporters that he would move forward in taking the device off the market if Bayer Pharmaceutical and the FDA would not do it themselves.
4: So if the FDA and the manufacturer of the device are not willing to remove this device, called dangerous device from the market, it's my view that Congress must act in that case. So I introduced the e Act in November of last year, the e Act, which is a bipartisan bill pending before the Energy and Commerce Committee would require the FDA to revoke the pre-market approval of the eShore
23: device. In response to Congressman Fitzpatrick's press call, Bayer released a statement denying the figure of over 300 fetal deaths saying that, quote, it is not true that an investigation revealed unreported deaths with Escher. Bayer reports adverse events to FDA consistent with FDA regulations. The reference data is also publicly available. But a data analyst on Congressman Fitzpatrick's press call clarified the discrepancy.
1: The majority of those 303 reports of fetal death, they are reported to the FDA as injuries and malfunctions. They're not reported as death report.
23: Bayer didn't address the kickback allegations.
1: The main thing I want to push right now pertaining to what Congressman Fitzpatrick said today is that what Bayer and Conceptus did is against the law. It's illegal.
23: Amanda Dykman is an Esher victim who gave her testimonial on Fitzpatrick's press call. She talked to The Real News after the phone conference about the complaint she brought to Fitzpatrick about illegal kickbacks.
1: Those kickbacks include over $20,000 worth of free uh, medical e- just of at least 25 Esher kits per month.
23: After Dykman underwent the Esher procedure in 2010, she says she started experiencing a range of debilitating symptoms from chronic fatigue, to heavy periods full of clots, to hair loss, to severe bloating. Now she hopes that enough victims of Esher have banded together through a Facebook page called Esher Problems that the FDA will be forced to address their grievances.
1: I don't think the FDA has enough funding to do what they need to do, you know, post-market and protect patients, so there there needs to be a change, and I'm hoping that Esher problems will will lead the path and spearhead the the fight against that.
23: The FDA is expected to publish a report in a week or so after a months-long review of Esher. Esher is protected from lawsuits under its pre-market approval status, which means that little progress can come without an E-Free Act to curb the effects of a medical device that many say has done enough damage. For The Real News, Thomas Hedges, Washington.
1: So none of this is conspiracy, it is this is fact. And the question is, all of these companies that gave us these vaccines, remember Moderna's commercial, we've bound this with a virus that we know very, very well, just a tiny bit of HIV. That doesn't sound right. Now today I introduced you to something that I've been talking about for a while, five basic elements of life. Nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and phosphorus. You are more light than you will ever know. And you know how you contain that light? By containing it in water. See, it's so bizarre seeing all of this play out years later. Years, years later. You know, they... They infected people, good people, under Fauci, of course, right? Under Fauci, of course, with HIV. I spoke about that. I told you about how he was using single black women that had nobody to experiment on new AIDS medication, right? What he called it. Everyone's part of a cohort. Here's another uh, report.
9: the panic attack In the 1980s, Bayer Corporation produced a medicine that was supposed to improve the lives of hemophiliacs. Bayer didn't tell those hemophiliacs that their product was infected with HIV. Because of that, entire families of hemophiliacs died with AIDS as the virus spread within households. When Bayer was ordered to stop selling their drug in America, they dumped their AIDS-laden product in Asia and killed Asian families. No one with Bayer management was arrested. No one who made these psychopathic quality decisions went to prison. They claimed the protection of their status as a corporation. That corporate status gave management the ability to kill people for profit and not go to prison. I handled the civil case against Bear and saw firsthand that this was a rogue operation, not typical of most corporations, but how do you put that rogue in prison? Who do you arrest? Today, rogue corporations have the best of all worlds. They take advantage of the constitutional protections that were originally written for living, breathing humans. They argue that the U.S. Supreme Court mandated 130 years ago that we must treat corporations exactly like we treat people. They argued that the 14th Amendment was written to protect their corporate person status with equal protection and due process. But when the conduct of that corporate person is so vile that they make decisions to kill people, to increase profit, we hear the argument that it was a corporate-wide decision. We hear that there was no single person to hold accountable. They tell us that many people were involved in the acts and we can't throw that corporation in prison. The US Supreme Court expanded the definition of person even further for American corporations. The big winner were the corporations that are the most corrupt. This is a Supreme Court that is packed mostly with lawyers who were employed by America's most powerful corporations before they became judges. It's a court full of judges who sit on the court largely because the corporate powerhouses they once represented helped put them there. Their decisions are predictable. When this court finished writing its opinion about treating corporations more like people, the product they delivered looked like one of those warm and fuzzy hallmark greeting cards that rallies our emotions with feel-good pictures of puppies and kittens and cherub-like babies. By way of words, they're going to paint a Norman Rockwell-like picture that's going to make us want to invite this saint-like corporate person to dinner with our families. A word of advice, though, if you do invite him over for dinner, send the children to another room and count the silver settings before this corporate person leaves the house. Most importantly, recognize that Mother Teresa character that the U.S. Supreme Court tries to sell you has more in common with Freddy Krueger. As this court expands the constitutional protections of this poor misunderstood entity known as the corporate person, they should also spend some time expanding avenues that allow us to do what we do with any psychopath who harms our family. Put handcuffs on them and throw them in prison.
1: Sounds like my kind of guy to have coffee with. But then you have to think about a few things. What we discussed today and what I have just provided you a little bit of scientific information. As you understand, phosphorus is stable in water and there have been cases, and these are well documented, where people's pH or the water uh, is a little bit off and causes cleavage and instability or radical species, as one would say. It's quite fascinating. And you know what else is quite fascinating? Bayer, now known as Monsato, that was approved and they purchased, you know, the same company that gave everybody AIDS, right? Through medication. Oh, you're sick because you can't clot. Wait, what's the key byproduct of these vaccines? Oh, shit. Clots. Almost like we're stuck in a nightmare. And then you have to wonder all of these companies have been funded. Who is at the foundation? I wonder. How many of your people in Congress have Monsanto money under them? I mean, Bayer. I mean, yeah. See, the more you know. Let's go back in time to about seven years ago.
24: Has recharged the debate over the future of our food. AN FDA RULING APPROVING THE SALE OF GENETICALLY MODIFIED SALMON HAS RECHARGED THE DEBATE OVER THE FUTURE OF OUR FOOD. CRITICS CALL THE MODIFIED SALMON FRANKENFISH, BUT GMOs, OR GENETICALLY MODIFIED ORGANISMS, have been part of our diet for years. Most of them are corn, soy, and other crops with added DNA from other organisms to increase their resistance to disease. The Grocery Manufacturers Association says up to 80% of processed foods sold in the US is genetically modified and most of it is not labeled
15: monsanto is one of the world's largest producers of genetically modified seeds the company is committed to innovation in agriculture but critics say it should be more transparent monsanto ceo hugh grant is with us at the table we're pleased to have him good morning good morning thanks for having me you know the concern about this and obviously you have to speak to it uh polls show people citizens across the country are concerned and for those who see that concern or express that concern how do you prove them otherwise and what is it exactly that you believe
25: well we're um, as as you know we're an agricultural company we sell seeds to farmers who make harvests and those harvests end up in plates around the world genetically modified uh, organisms have been around for 20 actually next year's the 20th anniversary so billions of acres trillions of portions of food and probably the most studied food products in the history of uh, of, of food production. So uh, I feel confident about the safety. But as, as you say, because of this, uh, you know, the, the continued concern, we probably should do a better job in, in dialogue and, and You mean more
15: transparency, more conversation, more
25: what? Well, I think I think more uh, more conversation. I, I think a part of the challenge is uh, there's such there's there's such misinformation on where food comes from. What's the misinformation? People uh, between uh, what arrives in a plate and what farmers do today. Um, we're so far, two percent of the uh, country feeds ninety eight percent. So I, I think for companies like mine, we, uh, we've got our work cut out in explaining what agriculture is and where you, food comes from. Are you in favor of mandatory labeling? I'm in favor of some federal standards. So I'm, I'm, I think um, a broad umbrella in labeling that's based on science and based on facts, um, I'd, I'd welcome. My, con- my concern, Charlie, is that um, a lot of the label and debate so far has been state by state mm-hmm. so independence that different labels in different states and that results in confusion instead of transparency mm-hmm. and it results in more expense so if there was an overall standard kind of like the organic if, if you look today at the organic food standard something that mirrored that i'd be i'd be in I'd but, be to, but to Charlie's
14: of... point about transparency, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm concerned about the time. Your company spent over four million dollars to defeat a GMO labeling ballot initiative in, in Colorado and over six million dollars in Oregon. So if you're for transparency, why spend so much money to make sure that it doesn't happen?
25: Because a deep concern that we end up with a patchwork quilt of state by state regulations, where you you end up in a place where you can't move a can of soup from one one state to the other. And when you talk to the food manufacturers, we are a seed company, mm-hmm. but when you talk to the food manufacturers, the concern is, how do you move food between states? So if you fast forward, we've been at this for 20 years, if, if you think forward, you think about food security and the challenges of climate change, these are tools that we're going to have to have in our back pocket and I'm concerned that if you build a patchwork of state-by-state legislation, we're, we're never going to move forward. And the consumer ends up paying four to $500 more a year in their grocery bills because um, y- you get state-by-state regulation. So I like the idea of something that covers the country. Isn't it in your interest to get out front of this? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. why I'm talking to you here today.
14: <laughs> yeah, but you've got okay. chain restaurants like McDonald's and Chipotle that are saying, listen, we're
1: Hold on a second, hold on a second. Let's just unpack. He's in favor of something that's for the whole country. So this German-based company called Bayer, now called Monsato, in charge of chemicals and healthcare and your food, decides that states do not have sovereignty and we should have federal regulations. See, this is how it begins. If all of you actually want to make change, We need to be targeting the actual problems. Number one problem is our elections. And that is spelled out in the HABA Act. You need to read the whole act and see what its purpose is. Second, now, while most of us drink water that's purified, that we do everything we can UV light, chemical treatments, right? Your skin is the largest organ your body has. For example, When I was in a lot of pain and under the weather, I had a big problem sleeping. I didn't want to take narcotics, right? It was very bad. I had maybe maximum of two hours sleep a couple times a day. So I got myself magnesium salt, drew a bath, dumped it in, sat down. My skin, being the largest organ, absorbed all of it. I was out like a light and had the first four-hour stretch of sleep. Because people that actually know can't sleep. And so I say again, these are the people that are running the world, your corporation. We are in a corporatocracy. And if you want to see who's really on your side, pull the books. Take a look at who's on Monsanto's side. Those that speak beautiful words to you, but mean nothing. Look at who they are villainizing. States across the world, states, and I say this states in the UN system across the world that are trying to maintain their integrity as sovereign states. Independent from the UN system, fighting for that freedom. And how did they begin that? Oh, that's right. They ban Monsanto, they ban genetically modified foods. Oh, but we catch the fish. <laughs> They've already inserted genetically modified fish to the population. But someone died from a clot and didn't get the vaccine. But they probably had unprotected sex or kissed or exchanged food or some type of bodily fluid. And there it is. See, it's extremely important for people to pay attention to who the real criminals are. They never change their habits. And it all starts in the 1800s when they were trying to fight something. See, this is how it comes up. Oh, shit. We have malaria. How do we fight it? Okay. Well, we do know that this is the vector. Well, how does it work? The RNA inside that serum works. And this is how it penetrates people and makes them sick. But what blocks it? Well, we can block the serum and disallow it from replicating with quinine. Oh, wait a minute but I can use quinine to make color. Okay, so we'll use quinine to make color and rather than cure people, let's see how we can use this to our benefit. I mean, we did blow up the Georgia Guidestones. So in 10 years, no one's gonna know that they exist. Almost like no one knows the Podesta emails exist. Why? Because they deleted those files off of WikiLeaks. That's why. That's the interesting part. That is the very interesting part. Now let's continue to hear how this Monsanto CEO is advocating to override state sovereignty and provide federal laws. See, if someone was to ask me, Tory, President Trump takes office today, what would you fix? I'll tell you what I fix. Elections, and what else do I fix? State sovereignty, and what else do I fix? the fourth unelected branch of government, the federal employees. Those three things need to be fixed. Those three things are necessary. Now take a listen to the rest of this. We're not gonna
14: use genetically modified uh, items anymore. Are you having dialogue with them? What do they know?
25: Yeah, I I think the change for us, real briefly, the change for us in the last couple of years is, I would always have said we're a seed company. The, the restaurants are so far away, they're so far down the chain from mm-hmm. us. I think more and more this is all interconnected. So we've been spending more time talking to the food companies, more time talking to consumers, because mm-hmm. I think when you, when you think about two and a half billion new citizens arriving on our planet in the next 30, 40 years, we're going to need every tool in the box to satisfy us. I'm curious us.
24: though, I mean, I know that your company deals primarily with seeds, will you try the genetically modified salmon when it's out Abs- on the market?
25: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You have no problem with that? No, I look forward to, uh, to trying the salmon. It's, just, it's not one of our products, but as I said earlier, we're going to, we're going to need all of these elements for our kids and our grandkids. go ahead
24: well quickly we want to talk about roundup it's been um approved in america by the epa something that that your company manufactures but many studies have looked at where um, it's funded or conducted by your company that this chemical may actually could cause cancer a chemical that is in this um, feed Um, is there any sort of response to that i mean are we in fact poisoning our crops by using this Roundup
25: chemical? Not at all. Farmers depend on this. It's an important tool for growers in the fight against uh, weeds. So every spring.
1: But fast forward, that turned out to be a lie, didn't it? Because we have massive lawsuits. So who do we believe? Good morning, America, CBS this morning, pretending to push back on a global CEO of one of the most evil companies that, (sighs) grew wings. We never won World War II. World War I was manufactured and World War III was already planned and they had already identified it will happen through Ukraine. It's almost like they have a quantum computer too, but only theirs is seen through their eyes. See, it's in the eyes of the beholder, what you can predict. And so here we are, we're trapped. We're in water so that can, we can remain stable. Huh. They're modifying the food. So from within, They have lied to us about the medications from within. And then we have those clowns that are sitting on our television sets smiling. Ah, They do actually live. And then we have these weird laws being passed. Like you don't need to know what's in your food. What is the FDA? We need to get rid of that. They should have zero power. Every state should have its own FDA. Every state should have its own right to elect and select what foods and medications are allowed within its borders. See, that's the beauty of the constitution, providing that sovereignty to every state. Hey, I want to go to Florida because they have non-GMO oranges, but California will buy them out of a lab. So I guess the Florida oranges will be paid at a premium if exported as an export item to California. Do you see where I'm going with this? See, that would be a harmonious break right there. But let's take a listen. Oh, they don't cause cancer, yet that was proven. See, this is from seven years ago.
25: Um, when they plant a crop, the weeds are there. They're there every spring. So they need all the help they can get to combat those uh, weeds. So I feel, I feel very good about the safety of the product. It's been studied extensively for more than 40 uh, years. And if you think to the, if you think to the future um, and how we, there's two challenges. How do we feed the hungry world how do we feed nine and a half billion people, number one? And number two, simultaneously, how do we fight climate change? And we are gonna need all of these tools and all of these products to help combat yeah. um, hungry and, and nations. And you have promised to go carbon neutral in crop production. We made an announcement yesterday that we'll be carbon neutral in uh, six short years. So um, for our entire footprint, we will be in a position where we, uh, what we emit will be, uh, Covered by um, what we what we uh, consume. Yeah, we no covered. one realistically.
1: Huh? Well, it's been over six years. Are they carbon neutral? No. But you know, climate change. You're the change they want to make. And now, without the Georgia guidestones, we have no idea what they planned. Right? Because that was exploded and doesn't exist. While many reveled in it. Yes, evil has been destroyed. What have we said about destroying monuments? Oh, that causes us to repeat history and we see nothing. Those in purple love it. See, that's the funny part, that people don't pay attention. Symbolism is definitely their downfall. And what we need to be doing is paying more attention. Now, going back to the phosphorus, I think we should end it with um, just five mysterious, in this monotonic, unexplained mysteries channel that put five mysterious cases of spontaneous human combustion, which is an actual scientific fact. And many people will be like, holy shit, do I need to keep my temperature down? I'm always being promoted to have thermogenesis, right? That's fine. As long as it's in water and the medium that your cells bathe in are good. Have you ever done cupping? See, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys a fun story. I was in the Middle East and I wanted to get some cupping done. And so I went there and they started rolling my back with something that felt like it was scratching it, but it was really pinching it. It was almost like those, um, you know, uh, what did they do? The needling on the face, you know, to keep women young. So they needled my back and then they put cups in, right? I didn't know they were needling my back. I just said I wanted to do cupping. And so after they finished and the cups came out, there was this jelly that was amassed, in those cups and the guy said well this one had a lot of garbage this area of your body had a lot of garbage in it and i'm like what the intracellular fluid where all our cells bathe into right in between them obviously had toxins and those it's called bloodletting i I had no idea that that's what they did it that, that, that that that's how they did it so i wanted people to understand today the basic foundations of humankind, which are the five basic elements. Everything else is just complementary, which is oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon, and phosphorus. And I wanted people to understand that while we're talking about just the vaccines and we're talking about Pfizer, yeah, we destroyed, just one tornado came out. I've talked about this before. Hey, are you not signing that bill? I'm going to send fires through your state. And you better do what I say. Hey, I signed that document and I need more emergency funding. I need about $500,000 right now for my city in order to make sure I can get people to suck on the teat of the government. But in order to keep it up, I got to have some money. All right, that's fine. We'll just set a fire over there for you. Maybe give you some torrential floods, create some emergency thing. And there we go. Tori, that's crazy. Nobody manipulates the weather. Huh? Saudi Arabia. Hey, look, we made it rain. See, this is the thing. We are legit running out of conspiracy theories. We are legit in a situation where we're chasing our tails. We're going after Pfizer and Moderna, which aren't even US freaking companies. And if you remember during the whole Pfizer thing where everyone was sharing memes and talking about, you know, venom and shit, I was telling you that the way they're manufacturing them isn't correct. Why were the components separate? That's because another company is behind all of it. The company behind your food, the company behind the pharma, the company behind your governments, the company behind your judges, the company behind almost everybody and their mother. It's almost like the Fondue brothers. They run the sugar industry. 98% of all sugar is theirs. And they fund both parties, creating the dipole environment that they need left or right, left or right, while they're fucking all of us in the middle. And then we have the child trafficking element, right? And many people find it disgusting that there are perverts that like it. But I'm going to tell you this again and again and again. And this is why I was very upset with the whole, you know, I know that you can pull at heartstrings. You can make a big grown-ass man cry when you show him a baby being sexually assaulted. But the fact is that humans aren't being trafficked for sex, I mean, we're all slaves. It's not just them. They are just more evident. It's experiments, and I've said this before, and I speak from experience. They target people that are genetically perfect for what they need. Why do you think certain people lose their kids? How is medical kidnap okay? These are real things that nobody wants to talk about. So today I've given you a mishmash, but I've Shown you exactly who, it's like a Scooby-Doo moment. While you think it's Pfizer, while you think it's Moderna, while you think it's this, well, actually, it's the people that started it from the beginning. And they knew the cure from the beginning. You see? Who found hydroxychloroquine first? Bayer. And who was giving people HIV throughout the years? Bayer. What is Bayer called now? Monsanto. Who has been giving cancer? To people? Monsanto. Who has been modifying all your food? Monsanto. Who has been advocating that your states lose sovereignty in identifying foods? Monsanto. Who the fuck do these Germans think they are coming to our nation? That's right. The man in the high castle. Maybe more than just a story. Now let's end with these five unexplained mysteries because, you know, truth is stranger than fiction.
26: Spontaneous human combustion occurs when a person bursts into flames due to a chemical reaction inside the body, without an external source of ignition. One fact that many of these cases have in common is that the fire never seems to spread. It occurs in one particular place, and once the victim is reduced to ashes, the fire mysteriously disappears. So, here are five mysterious cases of spontaneous human combustion. Michael Farity was a 76-year-old man who was found burned to death in the living room of his home at Clareview Park, Balabane. In the early hours of December the 22nd, 2010, Farity's neighbour, Mr. Mannion was awakened by the sound of a smoke alarm. Mannion went outside to find heavy smoke coming from Farity's house. Getting no answer from knocking on the door, he roused local residents, then shortly after called the Guardie and Fire Brigade. Farity's home was searched by forensic experts from the Guardie and the Fire Service, His body had been found lying on its back with his head closest to an open fireplace. The fire had been entirely confined to the sitting room, and the only damage found was to the totally burnt body, the ceiling above, and the floor beneath him. No trace of any accelerants were found, and there was nothing to suggest foul play had taken place. Assistant Chief Fire Officer Jerry O'Malley told the inquest into the death that after a thorough investigation, fire officers were satisfied that the open fire was not the cause of the blaze which led to Farrity's death. A post-mortem carried out by pathologist Grace Callagy noted that Farrity had suffered from type 2 diabetes and hypertension, but had not died from heart failure. Callagy concluded that the extensive nature of the burn sustained pre determining the precise cause of death. In September 2011, the West Galway coroner, Dr. Kieran McGloughin, informed the inquiry into the death that he searched medical literature to determine the cause of death. The coroner referred to Professor Bernard Knight's book on forensic pathology, which states that a high number of alleged incidents of spontaneous human combustion had taken place near an open fireplace or chimney. The coroner subsequently made a statement to the inquiry. This fire was thoroughly investigated, and I'm left with the conclusion that this fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion, for which there is no adequate explanation. George Mott was a retired fireman that suffered from lung problems and required an air mask and pump to breathe. In March 1986, his son, Kendall, went to go and see him and found all the windows browned and the interior smoked. His father's remains consisted of ash, a few splinters of bone and a fragment of skull. The very localized damage suggested that George had died from spontaneous combustion, a situation that is yet to be explained. George was a known drinker and used an oxygen tank, but it was not in use at the time of his death. A pack of matches were found next to the tank, but had never ignited. Young Sip Kim lived in Hawaii his whole life. He spent most of it paralyzed from the waist down and made his way around in his wheelchair. In December, 1956, he <laughs> Flames began to emanate from his stomach, rapidly spreading in all directions and engulfing him within seconds. A neighbor of his quickly ran to his aid and later said that he was covered in blue flames. She called for assistance from the fire department but by the time they had arrived some 15 minutes later, both the man and his wheelchair were nothing more than a pile of ash. All that remained of him was a pair of feet. No other areas of the room suffered any damage, and once the flames had succeeded in reducing the paralyzed man to nothing more than ash, they seemed to have simply disappeared instead of spreading elsewhere. Firemen and investigators were perplexed by this, as there were clothes and books all around that should have caught fire given their proximity to the fire. In 2013, when Danny Van Zandt's incarcerated body was discovered by members of his family, it was instantly apparent that although the heat and power of the blaze must have been great, there was no other damage to the rest of the wooden house where the 65-year-old lived in Oklahoma. Van Zandt's brother discovered the victim in the kitchen and immediately called 911. Fire crews found a badly burned body but no fire damage to nearby furniture or other items. There were no signs of a break-in, or struggle, or any cause of death. Although many people pointed out that Van Stamp was a well-known alcoholic and very heavy cigarette smoker, the physical evidence at the property suggested that neither were the cause. Not only was no other part of the home damaged, but there were no signs that a struggle had taken place, which might have suggested foul play. Investigator Ron Lockhart, as if to make a point even clearer, stated, you could pour gasoline on somebody and he wouldn't be as badly incinerated. Although Lockhart said that he believed that there must have been some ignition source, The suggestion of spontaneous human combustion was not officially ruled out. Sheriff Lockhart said, "...it's very unusual and it's bizarre and I can't explain it." It's well known that a tremendous amount of wood was required to reduce a human frame to mere ashes. On average, two cartloads of wood were required to burn a criminal at the stake, and the same amount was needed to cremate a corpse. So the fact that people are being found burned down to ashes, including their bones, on relatively undamaged floors, With no other obvious signs of fire damage within the area, and often with undamaged limbs left behind, all implied a form of burning that had to be quite different from the fires used for cremation. A form of burning that might be supernatural. Mary Hardy Reeser of St. Petersburg, Florida was a believed victim of spontaneous human combustion. The last time Mary had been seen alive was at 9pm on the night of the fire. Her son Dr. Richard Reeser and her landlady Mrs. Carpenter had visited Mary and said their farewells at around 9pm leaving Mary sitting comfortably in her chair. On July the 2nd, 1951, at around 8am, Reese's landlady, Mrs. Carpenter, arrived at Reese's door with a telegram. Trying the door, she found the metal doorknob to be uncomfortably warm to touch, and called the police. Upon entering Mary's apartment, a grisly sight confronted them. The freakish remains of Mary were discovered on a burned-out chair with only the charred, coiled springs remaining. The only parts of her left were her left foot, which still had a slipper on it, her backbone, and a mysteriously shrunken skull. Mary's body, which weighed 170 pounds, had been reduced to less than 10 pounds. The only damage to the apartment was a small circular burned area. At the side was a plastic wall socket which had melted and caused her clock to stop at 4:20 a.m. These findings and the remains of Mary baffled the firemen, police, and pathologists who examined them. Mary's apartment showed all the signs of heat damage. Walls were covered with a greasy soot, a mirror had cracked and plastic switches and two candles had melted. Experts said that a temperature of 2,500 degrees is necessary for such an extreme cremation. A cigarette could never have produced such a high temperature if it had ignited the chair or clothing. An FBI pathologist carried out tests for gasoline but nothing was found. Even a lightning storm had been considered. But no such storm had occurred in St. Petersburg on the night of her death. On the 7th of July, 1951, St. Petersburg Police Chief J.R. Reichert sent a box of evidence from the scene to FBI Director John Edgar Hoover. He included glass fragments found in the ashes, six more objects thought to be teeth, a section of the carpet and the surviving shoe. Reichert sent with the evidence a note which read, We request any information or theories that could explain how a human body could be so destroyed and the fire confined to such a small area and so little damage done to the structure of the building. The FBI eventually declared that Reza had been incinerated by the wick effect. As she was a known user of sleeping pills, they hypothesized that she would fallen unconscious while smoking and set fire to her nightclothes. The FBI wrote in its report, once the body starts to burn, there is enough fat and other inflammable substances to permit varying amounts of destruction to take place. Sometimes this combustion of burning will proceed to a degree which results in almost complete combustion of the body. However, the local police never bought the wick effect story, and to many, her death remains a mystery.
1: Just to end the show, let's watch this video from 16 years ago by B.O.B. And again, listen to the words. And Monsato, we already have it all. Like I said back in 2018, when this wasn't even a thing, we're going to have Nuremberg style trial. But that's not up to me. That's not up to someone you selected or was selected for you. It's up to the people to demand it. Every single state right now should be organizing to ensure that they can assert their state sovereignty. Every single person right now should be asserting that. This is how you fix it. Assert the fact that you are in charge. Don't rely on one person. God bless.
7: The truth is
16: (laughs) out there. Members of the press, the American public, and people
15: of the world. The original money came from the Nazi Fanatic
0: government. Well this is the mysterious case of Dr. Aiden. Looking after her patients was her only obligation, Uh but that was back before, Uh back before the situation. Uh Before she got a visit from an agent. Produced himself as an employee of the nation right. He asked would she be willing to offer cooperation uh, You fit the job description and all the qualifications uh-huh. If interested, I need your signature on this paper yeah. She signed a dotted line without the slightest hesitation sure. She didn't receive the letter stating the rules and regulations And the military bases where she must be relocated uh, She is not to discuss any business that's work for <laughs>